0: Last week, uh, we started a new series, uh, Evening uh, services, looking at first uh, and Second Peter. And so uh, if you were with us, uh, last uh, Sunday actually that was the afternoon it was right after church, each church uh, we sort of introduced the idea of first and second Peter, talked a little bit about Peter himself and the things that he had went through uh, in life, and what kind of man he was. But really, what we focused on was uh, the descriptions that Peter used in First Peter of how he described Christians, and so we looked at I think like thirteen of them. Uh, if you remember how he referred to them as aliens, and obedient children, and living stones, beloved, the flock of God, and uh, a lot of other different descriptions. And again, we focused on the you know the many hats. Uh, of the Christian, and hopefully, you know that lesson sort of gave us some confidence as to, uh, you know, the uh, the way we are to live, uh, the way we are to uh, be as Christians. And so, I also mentioned last week that you know the theme of the lessons that I'm going to be giving uh, over, at least in First Peter, is the idea of hope. You know, some have called First Peter actually the Epistle of Hope. Uh, there is a lot of hope focused uh, within these five chapters. But when you and I uh, study First Peter, you know, maybe the word that really comes to mind, first of all, is suffering. Uh, the word, the form of a word suffering, you know, suffer, suffered, suffering, it's found 16 times in First Peter. Again, in five chapters, that's, you know, over three times a chapter of the word suffer will show up in this in this book. Uh, more than any other New Testament book. You know, again, that's a major theme uh, throughout. You know, persecution is coming uh, to the Christians that he's writing to or, or it's already gotten to them. And Peter wants to provide them some comfort. Uh, but this letter is not meant to simply say, you know, hey, get ready or, you know, I hope you get through it. You know, but again, think about who's Peter is writing to. He's writing to uh, men and women of the Jewish faith who have converted to Christianity. Uh, they've had to forsake their old religion. They've had to maybe uh, forsake family and friends uh, to turn to Christ. And, and you've also got the Gentile world who's coming out of pagan religion. Uh, they, they're used to worshiping these false gods, uh, sacrificing, sacrificing their meat to idols, uh, giving up their past as well. And they're probably asking as this Suffering is starting to come their way. This persecution, you know, this didn't happen under uh, the old system that I uh, lived under. This didn't happen under the other religion or this false god that I worship. The, these things didn't happen. So, you know, I don't get it. And it'd be tempting for them to, you know, to turn away from Christianity, to turn away from their newfound faith, and go back to the way things were. Uh, th- that things were. And that's why we see that message of hope all over this epistle. Again, I mentioned last week that, you know, chapter one is really about keeping your hope in Christ's salvation. Chapters two and three we'll see later, keeping your hope in Christ's teaching. And chapters four and five, keeping your hope in Christ's suffering. And that's really the umbrella uh, of that we're gonna look at uh, throughout the next few weeks. But I wanna talk a little bit about hope before we jump into the letter. You know, the, the biblical definition of hope. And that really is a confident expectation to receive something. You know, that's the biblical definition of hope. When you read about hope in scriptures, they have a hope meaning they have a confident expectation to receive something. You know, when I hope that by my, you know, early 40s that my hair uh, is not going to go completely white, you know, that's not a biblical definition of hope. You know, that's worldly hope. That's me crossing my fingers and wishing. You know, that's me wishing that, you know, Michigan State's going to win the national championship uh, coming up next year. That's, that's worldly hope. Francis Bacon, uh, who lived in the 1500s, uh, was a philosopher, said this about hope. He said, hope is a good breakfast, but is a bad supper. And the idea behind that is that, you know, when we start the day off, we can be hopeful But when things don't go our way, by the by the end of night, by by dinner time, you know you're later going to feel disappointment. Again, hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical faith or biblical hope is not wishful thinking, thinking, but faithful expectation. You know, if God promises to wash away my sins at the point of baptism, Mark sixteen verse sixteen, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. You know, I put my hope in that, that that I have a confident expectation that that will happen. If God promises a home in heaven for those who who follow him, again, I put my hope in that. Again, uh, it's not a hope that, you know, maybe he'll keep his end of the bargain or the deal, but it's a confident expectation. I, I love how the Hebrews writer describes hope in Hebrews chapter six, verse 19, that hope is an anchor. It is the anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. You know, we understand an anchor uh, w- with a ship. When you, when you drop the anchor, the ship's not going to drift away. It's going to be there in place. And our hope, both sure and steadfast, anchors the soul. And so as we begin our study, again, of keeping hope in Christ's salvation, we want to focus tonight on the theme of the joy of hope and again, this is another lesson just like we did, you know, a few months ago when we went through the book of Colossians, where we're going to read the verses together and then discuss those. And so, uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at the first two verses here uh, to begin with. Uh, Peter begins this letter Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia. Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest fullest measure. You know We already uh, discussed this last week uh, about Peter referring to the Christians as aliens. And maybe your translation says something else. Uh, maybe he refers to them as exiles or pilgrims or strangers or sojourners. But again, the idea is, again, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. As the Christian, this world is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven, not here in this world. And again, that reminds us that this world is temporary. Uh, But also notice that he refers to them as the scattered uh, throughout these different regions. Uh, This word scattered, uh, again, maybe your translation says dispersion or dispersed. That's the technical term uh, referring to to the Jewish culture. The dispersed were the people who lived outside of the land of Palestine, outside the land of Israel. And to the Christians, again, these were those Christians that were dispersed throughout the Greco-Roman world. And, of course, that was all part of God's plan, wasn't it? You remember back in Acts chapter 8 when uh, Saul was persecuting the church? You know, Saul of Tarsus was going around uh, taking Christians to jail, uh, having them beaten, maybe put to death. And it tells us in Acts chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 that as he was doing that, uh, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem, but the Christians started to scatter. They started to scatter throughout uh, the, the known world at that time. And again, that was all part of God's plan for them to go to be his witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the outer remotest parts of the world. You know, they are scattered throughout these regions. And now the cities and regions that he names here are places that we might refer to as modern day Turkey or in biblical terms, Asia Minor. And so uh, he's writing to these groups of Christians. He's not writing to a church, per se, one church. He's not writing to one person, but he's writing to these Christians or these churches in this area, again, who are chosen, who were elect. Now, Peter didn't have a Calvinistic mindset. You know, sometimes when we see the word elect or chosen, we think of uh, Calvinism, you know, and that really comes down to uh, people asking: Does God choose those who are to be saved, or does God choose you know the class of people who are to be saved? You know, does He personally choose uh, the individual, or does He choose those who obediently follow Him? I love I love uh, the phrase uh, that Marshall Keeble uh, said: "It's not the man, but the plan." You know, I've used this illustration before. Uh, That, you know, if if I'm a school teacher and before class starts, if I make up the determination thinking, okay, everyone who's sitting in this row, I'm going to give them an A. Everyone who's sitting in this this uh, area, I'm going to give them a B. And everyone over here is going to get a C. You know, that's that's uh, choosing as, as in if I was going to choose, you know, their grade. But. Really, how God defines the chosen, the elect, is not by saying, okay, beforehand, I'm going to choose which grade you're going to get, but it's by saying, okay, everyone who gets, you know, at 90% between 100, I'm going to give them an A. And everyone who gets an 80, an 89, get a B, and so forth. Again, those who submit to his conditions, just like those who submit to those teachers' conditions, those who are the chosen. So again, Peter is writing to the chosen, those chosen Christians, those who have uh, been chosen by God because they followed his plan of obedience. Uh, but not only were they chosen, but verse 2, uh, look who all is involved in their choosing. You know, This is the Godhead. This is the Trinity. Uh, he says, by the foreknowledge of God the Father. You know, this was planned before creation, the foreknowledge of God the Father. Also by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit sets us apart. Uh, he makes us holy uh, by his word and then also by obeying Jesus and be sprinkled with his blood. And the idea there is forgiveness. You know, In the Old Testament, when, you, uh, when the Jewish people went to uh, the tabernacle or the temple to offer their sacrifice and the priest took their sacrifice and sprinkled the blood upon the altar, they were uh, forgiven. And so uh, notice again, all three uh, of the Godhead are present in that verse, uh, too, uh, who are part of uh, choosing uh, those uh, who were chosen, those who were elect. And then he finally finishes that verse off by saying, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You know, that's basically telling them, I hope you're doing well. You know, that, that was the standard greeting that they gave in all Paul's letters. He, he starts off his letters by saying grace and peace to you. And Peter does this as well. And so we notice in these first two verses that, I, that we find joy in the hope of being God's choice, in you know, chosen exiles. And that's, that's something that we can be joyful about. Uh, secondly, let's notice the joy in the new birth, verses three through five. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, there is so much to unpack in that verse three there. Uh, In that one verse, uh, he says that we are caused to be born again, to be born again. You know, that should take us back to John chapter three with a Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, you remember this account where uh, Jesus tells uh, Nicodemus that he must be born again if he wants to see the kingdom of heaven? Uh, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he says in verse 5 of John chapter 3, he cannot enter in the kingdom of God. And what he's referring to, of course, is baptism. Uh, being born again of water and the Spirit, of being going down into the waters and coming up out of the waters of baptism. Uh, And we're going to see in verse 23 later on next week that he also references being born again, uh, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. But again, he caused us to be born again. But notice also, he says to a living hope. You know, it's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. Christ was resurrected and lives. That's why it's a living hope. There is joy in the new birth. And also, in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. You know, think, of, think of an inheritance. If you've ever received an inheritance, you know, think about it for a second. You know, Maybe it was uh, some money. Maybe it was land. Maybe it was a certain object that someone wanted to you know, hand down to you. But now compare that. Compare that inheritance to the promised salvation of being born again. In verse 4, he tells us that this inheritance that we will receive. It's imperishable. Again, it won't break. It'll last forever. It'll be undefiled, meaning it'll be pure. It'll be of the highest quality. It will not fade away. It'll never lose its value. It'll never be spent. And finally, he says, reserved in heaven for you, right? God locked it in. It's going to be reserved for you uh, forever. Have you ever booked Uh, Maybe a hotel or some event and then you get there and find out that uh, they lost your reservation or maybe they double booked your reservation. That's not going to happen here with God and the inheritance that is promised to you because it is reserved in heaven for you. And verse five tells us he, he, he did this by his power. He protects us by that power. The same power he raised Christ from the dead. He protects us. But there's a contingency there in that verse. Because it's through faith, you know, a biblical faith, an active faith, uh, not passive, a faith that obeys and trusts and believes. And again, I find joy in the hope of an inheritance by being born again into God's family. Again, a living hope, a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Let's look at the next few verses, verses six through nine. Peter continues his thoughts. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, He begins the, the, that passage about this joy and suffering by saying, in this you greatly uh, rejoice. Well, in what? Well, that's back to the previous verses, being born again, having a living, living hope, having an unfading inheritance. Those things we greatly rejoice... But though suffering was the subject, joy, again, joy, not sorrow, was on his mind. Because he's going to go on to say that uh, maybe you're being distressed by various trials. You know, he doesn't specifically tell us uh, what the nature of those, but somehow they're paying the price for their faith. You know, we know that there were some very extreme cases uh, during this time that Peter was writing where Christians were tortured and killed. You know, the emperor, the Roman emperor Nero was in power at this time. And of course, if you know anything about him and the history uh, that he had there in Rome, uh, there was uh, a great fire that started, uh, referred to as the great fire of Rome. And uh, a lot of people believe that it was actually Nero who started that fire uh, because he wanted to rebuild uh, his his, uh, kingdom, his, his palace and he needed to, you know, burn down uh, the, the, the structure that was there in the first place. Well, by doing that, he made the Christians the scapegoat. He blamed the Christians on that fire. Uh, they were already seen and, and despised during that time, uh, but he laid it even more on them by blaming the fire on them. You know, he uh, had Christians crucified. He had them wrapped in animal skins and thrown into lion's dens and thrown into arenas. Uh, He lit them uh, as lights in his garden parties to light the way. There was this great persecution of the Christians during that time. Extreme cases. You know, other times they were ridiculed and ostracized. Maybe they were economically depressed. You know, people wouldn't purchase anything from them in the workplace or in the marketplace. Again, verse, uh, there it tells us in verse 6, If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Again, what were those trials? Well, Maybe it was some of those things. Well, why? Why were they going through those trials? I think First uh, John chapter 3 sort of gives us a little bit of a hint to that. In First John chapter 3, I want to read passages uh, starting in verse 11. Uh, notice the Apostle John says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, That we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be this surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. You Why did Cain kill his brother Abel? John tells us there because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You see, the world hates those who aspire to holiness. The, the world despises that. And so they're going through these trials. And verse 7 talks about the proof of their faith. You know, there's that figure of speech we f- see throughout the scriptures of people coming through a furnace like, uh, like metal through fire. It's common in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, and we understand that Christian faith is not static, it's not fixed. You know, you just don't have faith one day, and that's the same faith you have throughout your lives. You remember the jailer in Acts chapter 16 when when he uh, was told the gospel uh, there by Paul and was baptized? You know, at that point, his faith in Christ was sufficient enough for the occasion. But we would expect that over the years, over the years of living as a Christian... That his quality of faith would be refined through various trials and, and tests and, and Christian living and be much stronger, uh, gone through the fire, gone through the proof of, of this testing. Because trials expose the genuine quality of our faith. Uh, uh, they also generate a deeper faith. You know, every tear we cry, every funeral we attend, every heartache, every shoulder we lend for someone to cry on builds our faith. And Peter says that's more valuable than gold. You know, again, gold is perishable, uh, but our faith uh, is much more valuable than that. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though, again, you have not seen him, you believe in him. Again, uh, we didn't mention uh, verse 7 too much at the end of that, where he talks about uh, that it's going to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, another theme that we can see throughout 1 Peter is the second coming of Christ, the revelation of him, the return of the Lord. And and they've never seen him, yet they love him. Again, they believed in him. Their love did not depend, as human love ordinarily does, on outward physical appearances, characteristics. You know, that reminds us of Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29. Remember what Jesus said to him? Because you have seen me, you have believed Blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. Again, I find joy in the hope of a strengthened faith through trials and tribulations. You know, James chapter 1. You know, I think a lot of us, when we read that verse, you know, it uh, it always makes me smile when he says, Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And again, we need uh, to have that joy and suffering. And then the final point uh, we're going to notice here tonight in verses 10 through 12 is the joy and greater blessings. Uh, Peter uh, continues and says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look as to this salvation. You know, when the prophets, of the Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah and the salvation that would be uh, brought to men at his coming. Did they completely understand what they were writing, what they were saying, preaching? You know, did Isaiah really understand what he was preaching in Isaiah chapter 53 when he was talking about the suffering servant? If they did, then why did Peter say that they made careful searches and inquiries? You know, there's a specific a verse in Daniel chapter 7. You know, Daniel has this great revelation given to him by God about these four great beasts. And uh, he sees the Ancient of Days, which of course is God, and he sees one like the Son of Man, and he was distressed about seeing this vision because he wanted to know. He wanted to know so bad, and he even went and asked someone uh, to to tell him again what what, that, what was going on in that prophecy. You know, again, those prophets in the Old Testament they did not uh, fully understand the things that were being spoken or being written, what they were writing. Often they didn't have that insight. But not only the prophets had searched for those answers, but we also see the angels long to look. The angels were intrigued by it as well. You know, again, the Hebrews writer in Hebrews 2 verse 3 refers to it of so great a salvation. And again, I find joy in the hope of a promised salvation. Salvation that we can read about in bits and pieces in the Old Testament that has been fulfilled in Christ in the New Testament. Well, this evening, uh, next time, when we continue on in these lessons, we're going to look at verses 13 through 25 of 1 Peter, the the second half of chapter 1, and we'll notice uh, the conduct of hope. But again, there is a lot to be joyful in these passages, these first 12 verses of our hope placed in Christ Jesus. The joy of being chosen, being chosen by God. The joy of being born again. Uh, Born again in reference to being into the family of God. The joy of suffering. But again, that suffering refines our faith. It strengthens our faith. And the joy of the blessing of salvation in which the gospel message is being preached to all. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We often sing uh, that song. And because of that, again, it's not wishful thinking. It's not me crossing my fingers. But as the scripture tells us, Paul writes in Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 that we just read, hope prepares us for eternity because of his resurrection from the dead. And because the realize, realizing at the revelation of Jesus, when he comes again, again, our hope will be fulfilled. And do you have this hope this evening? This evening, as we offer the invitation. Uh, we'd love the opportunity, uh, if you're here with us this evening and not a Christian, to talk to you about that, to put Christ on in baptism, to, h- to help you to become a Christian. We, we know the Bible says we must hear the Word of God, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of sin, confess Him as Lord, and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Or if you're here this evening and you need the prayers of the congregation, the encouragement uh, of the, the saints here, again, we'd love the opportunity to help you in your walk with Christ. And no greater time than this, than to come forward now as together we stand and sing.